It's that time again. WOTR is on the air. It's two and one half hours of classic old time radio. I'm your host, John Richardson. So sit back, relax, and enjoy old time radio as it was meant to be. Tis the season to be jolly, and it's Christmas time here at WOTR, your old time radio station on the internet. And let's just see what packages are waiting for us under the Christmas tree. Let's unwrap this first package and see what we have. Hmm, interesting. It's a Western. Let's read the tag. Gunsmoke from CBS, December 20th, 1952, The Christmas Story. Around Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Everything was all right until about a mile north of the Cimarron. That's when my horse got a hoof caught in a frozen dog hole and broke his leg. So I had to shoot him. It made me feel awful bad. I didn't feel any better thinking about the walk ahead of me. Close to 40 miles to dodge and carrying my saddle all the way. Guess I'd been on the trail about an hour, near as I could figure it was around three in the afternoon. And I'd ease the saddle off my shoulders for a rest and a smoke. And that's when I saw the stranger riding up from the way I'd come. He was tall and thin. And his horse was taller and even thinner. And they made quite a pair. All right. How are you? You lost? No. My horse busted his leg away back. I'm on my way to Dodge. Oh, it's your horse, huh? I saw it. Yeah. On your way to Dodge, huh? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you got any more of that tobacco? Yeah, sure. Uh, here you are. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. That's okay. A big walk you've got ahead, ain't it? <laughs> kind of. It's going to be dark soon. You figure making camp? Uh, that's the idea. Uh-huh. Well, it's too bad. Yeah. Do you need any food? No, 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 thanks. I, I got enough. Uh-huh. Well, I thank you for the tobacco. Sure. Anytime. Hey. Yeah? That's saying this beast won't drop dead from the shock, but do you want to climb on behind? Save your piece of boot leather for a while, anyway. Well, I, 
I'd be much obliged if you think that animal of yours can carry us. Well, she won't mind. Should have been dead a long time ago, except she don't know it. She don't mind. Well, okay. Thanks. Uh, here, will you hold my saddle till I get up, huh? Yeah, give it here. Yeah. Uh, can you manage this saddle? Yeah, give it. Yeah, I got it. Now, let's go. You heading for Dodge, too? Not in particular. Just north. Uh-huh. This beast will do about ten knots with the wind behind her, but we ain't going to get more than five with this load. You ain't in no hurry, I am. Well, I, I was kind of hoping to get back tonight. It's a Christmas Eve, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. That backbone of hers sticking it to you? Oh, no, it's okay. Thanks. Notice that tin doodjigger tied to you. You the law? Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a U.S. Marshal. Uh, my name's Matt Dillon. That's so. I've never seen a Marshal on foot. <laughs> well, it happens sometimes. How is it you're down this way? Isn't it to mite off your course? Hmm? So you marshal down here as well as Dodge? No, no, I, I just took a prisoner across the Cimarron into Oklahoma Territory. Turned him over to the Army there. Did, And then he shot up tight. We must have ridden a couple of miles without a word. I got to thinking about Dodge and Chester and Doc and Kitty and the rest of them. You know, there's something pretty special about any place at Christmas time. <laughs> the backbone of the stranger's nag was just about to split me in two when he talked up. My name is... Cowley. Amos oh? Cowley. Yeah, uh, better heave to a spell. She's breathing mighty hard. All right, hold up. Yes. Ah. <clears throat> yeah, it's getting a little chilly, isn't it? Yeah. Um, could I trouble you for another smoke? Oh, sure, sure. Here you are. I thank you. Say, hmm? what's it like in Dodge? What? Dodge. Well, what's it like? <laughs> oh, it's like any other town, I guess. Pretty big, huh? Well, yeah, I, I guess so. Not so big as New York, though. Oh, oh no, 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 not as big as that. You know, I haven't been in a big town now for more than ten years. Oh, is that so? No. Been down the territories... Drifting. Thought I'd move up north this time. Maybe go back east. Now you're from the east, huh? Some time back. Say, what's it like? What? Well, Dodge, any town, uh, at Christmas. Same as it used to be? Well, I guess so. Uh, what do you do? Well, same as most people, I guess. What most people do at Christmas. Well, that ain't saying a lot. What are the folks like? And what does it look like? I, I just... I just kind of like to know. Well, I I don't know. Uh, well, there's Front Street. Uh, 
That's most of Dodge right now. Of course, it's getting bigger all Do the time. Do you have any kids? No, no, I'm not married. Yeah. Kids have fun Christmas. Yeah, yeah, they do. That, that's certain. And Dodge, they sometimes have a party for the kids. A couple of days before Christmas. Uh, kids like that. And then everybody gets feeling good, looking forward to Christmas Eve. Like last year. There was snow on the ground. But the sky was clear. You, you could even see the stars. I was going down the street to the Texas Trail to meet Doc and Chester. Uh, Chester, he's my deputy. Doc's a doctor in town. We had some work to do later on in the evening. You could uh, see the light shining behind the curtained windows. and Almost everybody had a sprig of holly berries hanging up. They got some from the east a couple of days earlier. I remember running into John Bumby. He's a kind of general handyman in Dodge. Never says much, but <laughs> he sure had a lot to say that night. Oh, hello, Marshal. Oh, hi, John. <clears throat> a lovely night for a Christmas Eve, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is, John. Yeah. Pretty fine night. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, <laughs> Mr. Dillon. Yeah, that's the way it should be, John. Um, you know, Marshal, this is going to be quite a night for me. Yes, sir. Oh, is that oh, so? Oh, yes, sir. Tonight, I'm asking Mrs. McNish to become Mrs. Bumby. What? Mm-hmm. Why, John, I didn't know that. Oh, I know it's been a mighty fast secret, but I, I'm popping the question tonight. Well, Ooh. I wish you a lot of luck, John. Hey, I'll, I'll tell you what. Come by to the Texas Trail later, and, and we'll have a drink on it. Oh, I will. I really will, Marshal. <laughs> You're good and kind, Marshal. Good and kind. Merry Christmas, <laughs> Marshal. Merry Christmas. Oh, the same to you, John. That may sound kind of funny to you, but John Bumby's a good man. A little peculiar sometimes, but good as they come. And they don't make enough like him. Of course, most everybody in Dodge suspected Doc and Ms. McNish were sweet on each other. But it just goes to show you. Uh, I'll tell you about John and Ms. McNish a little later. So I went on down the street. You know, it's a funny thing about those words... Merry Christmas. Men say it to each other, and... Well, it makes them feel kind of good. Yeah, I know what you mean. Used to be a seafaring man myself. When you're on the sea and it comes Christmas, things like that can... They can count a lot. Yeah. And we might as well get underway again, eh? Sure. Yeah. All right. You want to take yeah. my saddle? Give it here. Okay. Yeah. Give it to me. Okay. Come I guess... I guess you'll miss it in Dodge tonight, I mean, won't you? Well, if you could get a little more out of this nag of yours, we might make it tonight. Oh, there's not a chance. She'll be on her beam ends pretty quick. She's been on a long reach since sunup. Oh, Mighty bare country up this way. All right. Depends on what you're used to, I well, Mighty bare where I've been, too. It's not like the sea. That's always different. How come you left it? I always heard a sailor doesn't ever get it out of his blood. Or the sea? 
Guess you can get it out of your blood, all right. You got the right reason you can. Yeah, I guess so. Hey. You trying to get something out of me? What? Well, no. Get what? I, I would just remind you. You want to ride with me? I don't want any talk about the sea. Well, you brought it up. <laughs> I get it. Return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, tomorrow night, Jack Benny and his whole fun-making gang make a personal appearance at a Long Beach, California veterans' hospital. It's going to be a Christmas they'll never forget, as Benny and the bunch cut loose while they assist the folks at the hospital in trimming their Christmas tree. Be sure to join the fun tomorrow night on CBS Radio when it's Jack Benny time all across America. Now for the second act of Gunsmoke. Amos Cowley sulked his way along the trail for the next while. And then it was almost like he couldn't stand the quiet. Or maybe he had things on his mind. He turned his head. Go on. What? Go on. Tell me some more. Oh, about Dodge? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Well, you try some more. Well, uh... They got a little pine tree in the Texas a Trail. Tree. Yeah, come down a long way from the north. Uh, uh, Kitty Russell, she she's a hostess in the Texas Trail. Well, she she got a lot of ribbon and gewgaws and made it look real nice. That, that was last Christmas. A star at the top. A star? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It looked like a star. I guess it sure looked pretty. And there was a well, a a, a difference in the place that day. Everybody was celebrating and feeling real good. The doors would swing open and somebody would come in and... You know, maybe somebody you just knew to nod at, but because it was Christmas Eve, he'd come right up and say, Hello. Oh, maybe that's a good reason, maybe not. I don't know. Anyhow, it was still kind of early. Kitty and Chester were standing off looking at the tree. Matt. Good evening, Mr. Dillon. Hi, Kitty. Chester. How do you like it, Matt? Christmas tree. That's oh, yours. that's real pretty. Only tree but one in the whole town. Yeah, Kate's got one over at the Alphaganza. Oh, well, I'll have to see it later. Sure, you're next. Where, where's Sam? I don't know. Maybe he started celebrating too soon. Oh. Doc's taking over the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. You, you want a drink, Kitty? Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Oh, right away. I'll get you a drink. I'll get you uh, You haven't forgotten anything, have you, Mr. Dillon? Forgotten? Uh, what, Chester? There. What did I tell you, Miss Kitty? I knew just as sure as my nose that oh, you forgot. Oh, that. No, no. I, I hadn't forgotten. Oh, well... I thought as soon as they get Sam sober enough to take care of the customers, we could go on over to Doc's like we planned. Sure, we'll do that, Chester. Here you are, Matt. Ah, thanks, Doc. Ah, oh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's still snowing out? No, no, it's not. 
Uh, Where are you going, Kitty? All right. Just want to look outside. Ah, real pretty. Man thinks of a lot of funny things that don't mean much. Kitty standing at the door, sniffing the cold air, and the warmth inside, and the whiskey in me. It, it, it was a good feeling. And then Chester and I decided to take a bottle over to Mr. Hightower. He's the telegraph operator over at the depot. He runs a printing shop on the side. Say, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, Chester. Do you mind if I stop by the church for a minute? Well, no, I don't mind. I just feel kind of right tonight, Mr. Dillon. Figure out to thank somebody for it. Sure. stop by the church. I've never been much of a man for church, I guess, but I went along with Chester. Wasn't anybody else there, just the two of us. Guess we sat for ten minutes in that place. Chester a little way off with his head bowed. You know, there's a lot of peace in a church. Maybe, maybe it's the quiet. Maybe, maybe it's the good that people find in there. Whatever it was, it made a man feel glad about pretty much everything. I haven't been in a church since I don't know when. Oh, is that so? I heaved to. Well, she's becalmed again, mister. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> she sure wasn't built for it, I'll tell you. You ever see anything like that? <laughs> uh, she is kind of old, isn't well, she? I've had her going on eight years. She hasn't changed a mite. Eats like a pig and looks like a four-legged mizzenmist. <laughs> Smoke? Don't mind. Hey, what about that, uh... That fellow Hightower, did you get that bottle to him? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I guess it was lonely over in the depot all alone. He... He was glad for the company. There was a wood fire burning in the stove, but it didn't keep out the cold. Well, how are you, gents? Merry Christmas. Well, how's it going, Mr. Hightower? Oh, slow, Marshal, slow. Bit of excitement about an hour back, though. That's so? Yeah, 9.15 got stuck between here and Hutchison. Lots of snow back there. They getting her out? Sure, they're trying, but (laughs) I'm sure glad I'm not on it. It's going to be a cold night on that train. Well, it's kind of chilly in here, isn't it, Mr. Hightower? Any warmer, and I'm going to sleep. Well, say, we brought you over a bottle of Irish for company. (laughs) Jameson's, well, I declare I was just thinking about a top before you boys come in. Now, that's real (laughs) friendly. Will you have a drink with me? We sure will. Let's open her up, huh? A couple of glasses up on the shelf there, Chester. Get them down, will you? I don't know if you get an idea about the folks in Dodge or not. They're not any different than any other people. Or the town either. Uh, I guess maybe it's a pretty small place at that. The depot, the hall, 
a few stores, a church, Doc's office, a Texas trail, Alifaganza, my office. Uh, well, not much, but hey, it, it's where you live, you know? Sounds all right. I lived in a town once back east. Small. I know what you mean. Well, maybe you'll be going back. Maybe. Say, the kids, they still believe in St. Nick. Oh, sure. Mighty few kids down where I've been. Injun kids, they don't believe in St. Nick. No reason they should, I guess. I used to believe in it, you know that? Well, I guess most people did one time or another. Hey, you figure we come maybe ten miles? Maybe. It's getting dark. Yeah. Well, come on. You want to... You want to ride the saddle for a bit? Oh, no, no. I, uh, that's okay. Well, then, okay. We rode on, and I thought about last year, about Kitty, Doc, and Chester and me going over to Doc's place after Doc got tired at Tendon Bar at the Texas Trail. It was about a quarter to midnight, and we stood around and sang Christmas carols. And I, I remember how it sounded that night. How it looked. The glow in the stove in the middle of the room. And, uh, and the frosty windows. On a cold winter Yeah, it was Christmas Eve, all right. There was so deep Nowhere, nowhere Nowhere, nowhere Born is the king of Israel (laughs) (laughs) Say, that was fine. That was just fine. Yes, it was. Oh, gee. Uh, say, now, uh, what do you say if hey, we... Uh, hey, hey, listen. Hey. Huh? Huh? Oh. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I feel sentimental. That's exactly what I feel. I feel sentimental. I know what you mean, Doc. I surely know. Okay, Doc. Bring him out. <laughs> and I remember how Doc scuttled over to the bureau and brought out some packages. The presents weren't much, but it didn't matter what they were. And when we'd finished opening them, it was Chester who said what we were all thinking. I just... I, I, I just want to say... Miss Kitty... Doc, you, Mr. Dillon, I, I just want to say that this is the best doggone Christmas I ever had. And, and that's what I want to say. Say, he was going to tell me about that, uh, that fellow John was caught in that woman... What was her name? Oh, oh, yeah. Miss McNish. That's right. Well, she said yes. And you've never seen two happier people in your whole life. Yeah, she's Miss McNish Bumpy now. Well, that's good. (laughs) Uh, You know, 
You might settle for a bit and dodge or you could get work there. Sure would be fine if you could get back tonight, wouldn't it? Well, it, it can't be helped. I'd be a lot further away and a sight more tired if you hadn't come along. Yeah. Now, listen. How far do you figure before there's a place you might pick up a horse? Oh, I don't know. Fifteen miles or so, maybe. Oh, I'm not going to make any fifteen miles in this nag tonight, that's for sure. Oh, it's all right. Now, I tell you what. You go on alone, you see. Oh, no, forget now, you it. you go I... on alone. She'd hold out with one man on her. And then you get a fresh horse and you ride into Dodge tonight. Well, thanks. That's now, very I'm kind. telling you, I want you to go. I'll be fine. I've walked before. Probably make it almost as quick as you. Look, look it's, it's real nice of you, Mr. Cowley, but no thanks. Now, now, Christmas don't mean nothing to me. You got friends waiting for well, you. Well, I'll see them tomorrow. Ah, you're a fool. Well, that may be. All of them nice folks. I'm going to make them feel pretty bad. Uh, look, I'll stay. If you want to go on along, uh, uh, thanks for the ride. Well, let's well make camp then. <laughs> I guess so. And listen, you want to tell me some more about uh, what you were telling me before we turn in? Well, sure. I but... take it kindly, mister. I'll get yourself settled. I got some stuff in my pack we can eat and maybe get a fire going. Then after we eat, you can tell me some more. We made a fire and then shared what we had for supper. He seemed to soften up after that, and we talked for a couple or three hours. It was like he was starved for news of people, everyday things, and just plain company. And that's how we spent Christmas Eve together out on the plane. And then when the fire was dying down and I was about ready for sleep, he said, Marshal. Yeah? I want to tell you something. I've been needing to tell it for a long time. Do you mind? Why, of course I don't mind. Well, then I'll tell you. A few years ago, I was skipper of a little schooner. I used to sail up and down the East Coast, you know, Boston, New York. Yeah. Well, one night... We hit dirty weather off New Jersey, real dirty. Blew us off course, and we piled up on the rocks and knocked the bottom out. That's too bad. There was 18 passengers aboard, Marshal. Four of them was kids. We never saw them again. No. And my own... My own wife and my kid went down, too. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, no. Something must have happened to me after that. I didn't want nothing to do with... With ships or the sea, and I started to drift out this way. I couldn't forget, though, do you know? And I didn't want to be near folks, especially kids, to remind me, do you know? Yeah. Well, that's how come I've been slewing around ever since. Sure, I understand. Just kind of wanted to get it off my chest. Sure. Marshal... I'd like to ride into Dodge with you tomorrow. You think I might meet some of them folks you were telling them about? Why? I don't see why not. That it'd be all right. Maybe I wouldn't need to drift no more. Maybe I could... Uh, <laughs> drop anchor, do you know? Yeah, you might at that. Yes. Well... 
Good night. Good night. Merry Christmas, Marshal. Merry Christmas, Mr. Cowley. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, with Harry Bartell and John Daner, Parley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Tomorrow night, Edgar Bergen's real-life daughter Candy pays him and you a visit on The Edgar Bergen Show with Charlie McCarthy. Candy and Charlie hit it off fine, but Edgar has cause to regret his hasty decision to invite his six-year-old daughter into the show, especially when she starts throwing her voice. Sounds like fun tomorrow night on most of these same stations when CBS Radio presents The Edgar Bergen Show with Charlie McCarthy. This is Roy Rowan speaking. And remember, Eve Arden is our Miss Brooks, teaches you how to laugh every Sunday on the CBS Radio Network. I'm going to go over and look at my stocking. It's right over here by the fireplace. Whoa, look at that. This is your FBI from ABC Radio on December 22nd, 1950. The return of St. Nick. The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This is your FBI. This is your FBI. The official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Presented transcribed as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. The Equitable Life Assurance Society has nearly 8,000 trained representatives from coast to coast, serving over 4 million members. Tonight, one of our Equitable Society representatives 
has a brief but important message on Social Security. The recent changes in the Social Security law mean 10 million new people are now covered for the first time. Others have had their benefits greatly increased. Considering these changes, this Christmas season is a particularly good time to take a fresh look at your future, to examine just where you stand. To help you do this job easily, the Equitable Society has revised its famous fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers. Let me advise you to listen carefully when, in about 14 minutes, Mr. Keating will tell you more about this equitable chart. Tonight, FBI file number 298. Its subject, The Christmas Season. Its title, The Return of St. Nick. United States is a young country in the family of nations, but already it has its share of national holidays, holidays that belong to these 48 states. Those holidays are spaced from February to November, and of every one of those days, it can be said that they belong to the people of the United States exclusively. But there is one legal holiday observed in this country that does not belong to us exclusively any more than it belongs to any nation. It, too, celebrates a birthday. A birthday which has come to mean much in the hearts of millions of people. A birthday we call Christmas. Tonight's program, based on the holiday theme, has, by your request, become almost a tradition in our series. It opens in an FBI field office located in a large eastern city. It is two days before Christmas, and Special Agent Jim Taylor has just entered the office of Agent in Charge Sheridan. Morning, Jim. Good morning, sir. I've got my report here on the Henderson case. Oh, fine. Just leave it on my desk, will you? Well, you're officially on leave, aren't you, Jim? Yes, sir, as of this morning. But I wanted to hand this in before I left. No. You going out of town for the holiday? That's right, sir. Flying home this afternoon. Good. How long since you've been home on Christmas? Oh, three years. <laughs> Well, have a nice trip, Jim. Thank you, sir. And a very Merry Christmas. Same to you. Mister. Yes, what is it, son? Where's the FBI? Right down there at the end of the hall. Oh, thank you. Oh, wait a minute. What do you want with the FBI, son? Well, we've got some trouble, and I thought they could help us. Well, I'm a special agent. You think I could help? Are you a gene man? <laughs> That's right. What kind of trouble do you have? Santa Claus is missing. Um, that is trouble. His name is Mr. Norton, and we've got to find him. We've looked all over. Who looked all over? All of us older fellows at the settlement house. We went every place. All of you older fellows, huh? How old are you, son? I'll be ten next month. I see. Can you help us, mister? Well, I, I don't know. But I'll tell you what we'll do first. Let's go downstairs and get an ice cream soda, and you can tell me the whole story. <laughs> Taylor. Nice looking building. Here, we go in this door. Okay. Go ahead. Mr. Williams' office is in there. He's a nice man. I'm sure he is. This door here? Yes. But first we must knock. Oh, I didn't know that. Come in. Hello, Mr. Williams. Hello, Eddie. 
This is Mr. Taylor. How do you do, Mr. Taylor? Nice to meet you, sir. Mr. Taylor is a G-man. Yes? Yes. I got him to help us find Mr. Norton. Oh, I see. Well, I've got to run now. Choir practice starts in ten minutes. All right, Eddie, you go ahead. I'll explain everything to Mr. Taylor. I'll see you later, Eddie. Talk to you, Mr. Taylor. I'm sorry you were bothered by Eddie, Mr. Taylor. Oh, it's no bother at all, Mr. Williams. Eddie made me feel genuinely concerned. I'm sure he did. We're all very concerned about Mr. Norton. Well, if there's anything at all I can do, unofficially, of course, I'd be very happy to. That's very nice of you. What happened to this Mr. Norton? Who is he? Well, Bob Norton has worked here at the settlement house longer than anyone can remember. I've been here 15 years, and he was here when I came. I see. How old would you say he is? Well, I'd guess around 60 or 65. Mm-hmm. And his job? Nothing in particular. He did odd jobs around the house and returned for his room and board and a few dollars a month. The biggest job he had was being Santa Claus every year at the Christmas party. Mm-hmm. Every child in the house was crazy about him, and he loved every one of them in return. And he said he was missing, is that true? Yes, I have no idea where he could have gone. Well, what made him leave? That's the odd part of it. No one seems to know. Yesterday, he sent in one of the boys with a note to me saying he was leaving immediately. I see. I went to his room and he was gone. I'm afraid it's not going to be much of a Christmas for the children without Pop. Now, Mr. Williams, do you mind if I take a look around his room? Well, not at all. Maybe I can find something there that will lead us to where Santa Claus is hiding. Well, when I left your office this morning, a young boy stopped me in the hall and asked me for some help. 
Yeah? Well, what kind of help? Well, he belongs to the Murray Street Settlement House, and it seems that there's Santa Claus. It just, he, <laughs> he wanted us to find him. I, I went back with him, and I talked to the head of the house. Well, what's the story? Well, this Mr. Norton has worked at the Settlement House for, oh, about 30 years, and then yesterday he suddenly quit. Uh, why? Well, nobody seems to know, sir, except that he saw two women come in, and he hid in a closet until they left and packed his belongings and disappeared. I see. I know this isn't our case, sir, but, well, I'd like to ask a favor. What is it? We have no picture of this man, sir, and I'd like to have an artist go over to the settlement house, talk to the kids, and make up a composite picture of Mr. Norton. Well, what do you want that for? Well, I have a hunch that Mr. Norton's still in the neighborhood. I'd like to circulate the picture and see if we can't get him back to the settlement house in time to be Santa Claus again this year. Well, now, what about your trip home, Jim? Oh, it can wait a day. I don't mind. All right. Go ahead. We'll find an artist, and more than that, you can use any facilities we've got. Thank you very much. Sheldon speaking. Is Mr. Taylor there? Yes, just a moment. You, Jim. Oh, thank you, sir. Hello. Hello, Mr. Taylor. Oh, hello, Mr. Williams. I've got that information for you. Oh, that's fine. The woman with Mrs. Chester yesterday was a Mrs. Norman Montgomery. She lived at 310 North Jackson Avenue. Mrs. Norman Montgomery, 310 North Jackson. Thank you very much, Mr. Williams. She must have been the one Pop was afraid of. Oh, why do you say that? Well, Mrs. Chester's been on friendly terms with Pop for 15 years. Oh, I see. Oh, Mr. Williams, I'm sending an artist over. I'd appreciate you letting him talk to all of the children so that he can make up a composite picture of Mr. Norton for us. We'll do anything we can to help, Mr. Taylor. Fine. He should be there in about, oh, half an hour. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Eddie wants to talk to all you. Right. Here he is. Hello, Mr. Taylor. Hello, Eddie. What did you find out? Nothing. I went to the library like you said, but Pop never came. Well, you go back there, Eddie, and keep watching. Don't give up so easily. All right, Mr. Taylor. I'll go back right now. boy. And, Eddie... You tell all of your friends up there that if it's at all possible for the FBI to find Santa Claus, we'll have him there tomorrow night for that party. Just a moment, please. Mrs. Montgomery? Yes? My name is Taylor. I'm from the FBI. Here are my credentials, ma'am. What can I do for you, Mr. Taylor? Oh, I'd like to come in and talk to you, if you don't mind. You come in. Thank you. What is it you want? Well, I'm checking up on something, and I'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, what sort of questions? Well, the first one would be, were you at the Murray Street Settlement House yesterday? Oh, yes, I was with Mrs. Chester. What does that to do with you? Well, that has nothing to do with me, Mrs. Montgomery, but it might have something to do with the man who disappeared. What are you talking about? Well, this man who disappeared seemed to be afraid of being seen by you, according to what I can gather. Why? Well, that's merely a theory, Mrs. Montgomery. Why would he be afraid of me? Well, that's what we don't know. Who is this man? Well, this is a composite picture made by one of the artists in our office. Here you are. What? Do you recognize him? Yes, I do. I haven't seen or talked with him in 30 years, but I know him. Oh, who is he? He's my brother, Kenneth. Why would your own brother try to avoid you? He had a good reason. What's that, Mrs. Montgomery? Kenneth is a common thief. We will return in just a minute to tonight's exciting case from the official files of your FBI. Now, a short announcement from the Equitable Life Assurance Society on its famous fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers. 
This year, there has been an unprecedented demand for this fact-finding chart. Our revised 1950 edition is practically exhausted. So, better make a note to ask your Equitable Society representative for your copy right away. This is the last time you will be reminded to do so on this program. Remember, this 1950 edition of the chart has been revised to take into account the recent changes in the Social Security Act. These changes mean that the Social Security benefits of 35 million Americans have been increased 50 to 100 percent. And the names of an additional 10 million of our citizens have been added to the Social Security rolls. In either case, the equitable fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers is just what the doctor ordered. When you get this chart, you pretend for a few minutes that the breadwinner of your family has died before his time. The family's regular monthly income is cut off, but the children still need shoes, a roof over their heads, nourishing food. And how much is all that going to cost? The fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers will give you a reliable and accurate answer. With their new Social Security benefits, how many additional dollars will they need every week until the youngest child finishes high school? In five minutes, the fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers gives you an answer that you can trust guides you every step of the way with simple, easy-to-understand pictures. Once you have the facts before you, you can plan intelligently. Chances are that with your present life insurance and your new Social Security benefits, only a small amount of additional life insurance will mean complete security. Your equitable representative will be glad to work out a sound and economical program for you. In any event, the first step is to ask him for a copy of the revised fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers. No charge, of course, and no obligation. So get in touch with your equitable representative soon. Or write care of this station to the Equitable Life Assurance Society. That's E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the FBI file, The Return of St. Nick. Hate is a vicious emotion which feeds upon itself and becomes greater as time goes on. It utterly destroys every person it possesses because it ruins their judgment by robbing them of their ability to see both sides of any question. Ultimately, it must warp the mind to such a degree that only a paramount shock can restore any degree of mental balance. As you can see from tonight's case from the files of your FBI, hate can make two members of the same family stop talking for 30 years. For a period of time that is almost half the allotted time of man on earth. That kind of hatred can consume a person, an industry, or a nation. For when a nation hates that way, the lone possible outlet is war. No one person can prevent a war between nations. But every one of you can make this a much finer holiday season for yourself by resolving to live your life with full dignity as a human being and full respect for the rights of every other human being on the face of the earth. Tonight's file continues in the apartment of Mrs. Montgomery. Mr. Taylor, I assume that your business with me is concluded. Yes, I'm afraid it is, Mrs. Montgomery, and I'm sorry, because you're the one person I hope could help us find your brother. What do you want to find him for? To arrest him? Oh, no, indeed, no. Now, until his disappearance, he worked at the Murray Street Settlement House, and the children there love him. 
Very important to them that he be found so that he can play Santa Claus at their Christmas party. Well, I haven't seen him for 30 years. I have no idea where he might be, and frankly, I don't care. Mrs. Montgomery, why do you believe your brother is a thief? Would you mind telling me? Well, if you promise to keep it confidential. I naturally want no publicity. No, I assure you, your story will not be publicized. Yeah, very well. More than 30 years ago, shortly after my father's death, Kenneth forged my name to a check for $10,000. How did you find out that he did it? <laughs> Perfectly obvious. He was an irresponsible young man, and shortly after the forgery, he suddenly had a lot of money. Anyone ask him where he got it? Yes, he said he made it as a result of an investment. Of course, that was a lie. Did uh, you discover the forgery yourself, Mrs. Montgomery? No, I didn't, but a Mr. Bryant, who was the executor of my father's estate and an old friend of the family, found out about it. He came and told me. Uh -huh. You never prosecuted the matter? No, Mr. Bryant convinced me that I shouldn't risk ruining our family's name. Mrs. Montgomery, did it ever occur to you that your brother might have been telling you the truth? He couldn't have. Well, if you don't mind my saying so, I think that anyone who has his record with children deserves more of a break than that. Uh, do you by any chance still have that forged check? Yes, I have it. And would you have any samples of your brother's handwriting of that period? Yes, I kept all of the papers in the case in a special file. Do you have that file handy? Yes. I wonder if I might borrow it. For what purpose? Well, I'd like to see if a hunch I have about your brother's innocence is correct. Hello, Mr. Taylor. Oh, hello, Eddie. Have a chair. Well, oh, thank you. Well, Eddie... Eddie, what are you doing wearing a mustache? Well, I bought a disguise kit, Mr. Taylor, so I could stay at the library and watch out for Mr. Norton without him recognizing me. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, tell me, did you see Mr. Norton? Yes, I did. You did? When? Well, he didn't show up at all last night. I stayed until the library closed. Mm -hmm. Well, you told me to stay on it, so I went back this morning, and he came to the library about 10 o'clock. Stockton? I tried to talk to him, but he said he didn't know me. He did? Yeah. So I took off the red wig I was wearing, but he still said he didn't know me. I didn't think he'd do that. And then he turned around and walked out of the library. I trailed him, just like I saw a detective do in the movies. Where'd he go? I wrote down the address, Mr. Taylor. Uh, here it is. 71 Vernon Avenue. 71 Vernon. That's not far from the settlement house, is it? No. It's only about two blocks. <laughs> Good work, partner. Here's that report from handwriting, Mr. Taylor. Oh, thanks very much. What's that, Mr. Taylor? Oh, I had some papers analyzed by our handwriting experts, eh? Are you going to go to see Pop now? In a little while, Eddie. First, I've got another call to make. Look, you go back over to the settlement house. I'll see you there later on. Good morning, Mrs. Montgomery. Good morning. May I come in? Surely. Thank you. I have some news about your brother. What kind of news? Well, I took your file of papers down to the handwriting analysis department at our office. Why did you do that? Because I wanted them to study the signature on that forged check and then to compare it with samples of your brother's handwriting. I don't understand why you had them do all that. Well, Mrs. Montgomery, when this crime was committed, modern scientific handwriting analysis was not used in cases of this kind. So? Well, so today it's possible for experts to examine handwriting and to make a sound judgment based on their study. 
Well, those experts have just written a report stating that your brother did not forge that check. I can't believe it. Well, nevertheless, it's true. I know it isn't very polite to speak ill of the dead, but according to the report, the executor of the estate, Mr. Bryant, is the man who forged that check. Mr. Bryant? That's right. Hmm. I don't know what to say. Well, I think that whatever you do have to say ought to be said to your brother. But he's disappeared. He was found this afternoon in a rooming house on Vernon Avenue. Mr. Taylor, I'm not a young woman anymore. And about all I have left is my pride. Would you ask Kenneth to come to see me tonight? Well, I, I'm sorry, Mrs. Montgomery, but I think your brother has some pride himself. After all, he ran away when he was innocent. No, I'd suggest that if you want to see him, you'll meet us. Where? Well, if everything goes well, we'll be at the settlement house at 8 o'clock tonight. Mr. Norton? That's right. Well, I'd like to talk to you, sir. Come in. Thank you. Mr. Norton, I'm from the FBI. Here are my credentials. Well, what do you want here? Well, I came up to ask you to come back to the settlement house. I'm sorry, but I, I don't think that's any of your business. You're quite right, sir, it isn't. May I ask you a question? What is it? Why did you leave? Oh, well, I, I just got tired of listening to all those kids yelling and screaming in my ears. I find it pretty difficult to believe, sir, that anyone who spent 30 years with children as you have would suddenly get to dislike them that way. Well, maybe that's not the reason. Maybe I've got reasons of my own that I, I don't want to talk about. Could it uh, possibly be because of your sister? Who told you that? Well, I'm sorry if I seem to have pried into your affairs, Mr. Norton, but I've been to see your sister. What for? Well, I went there because I was trying to find you. She uh, told me about that check for $10,000. She did? Yes, and with the aid of the FBI laboratory, we showed your sister that you didn't forge her name. Mr. Bryant was the guilty one. What did you say? I said Mr. Bryant was the one who forged that check. How do you know that? Handwriting analysis proved it. Uh-huh. You told this to my sister? Yes, sir. Oh. Did she believe you? Yes, sir, she did. And she'd like to see you. She'd like to try to make amends. I asked her to come to the settlement house tonight. I don't want to see her. Oh, no, Mr. Norton. Oh. Mr. Norton, it's Christmas Eve. Uh -uh. There's no time to feel that way. If she's coming to the settlement house, I... I won't go back. Oh, now, look, Mr. Norton, you're not going to let all of those kids down. Well, now, I just on, told please. you that Put I on your won't. coat. Now, if, well, if we hurry, we can get there for the beginning of the party. Well, hey, started to snow just in time. Kids will be happy. <laughs> You know, it makes it seem more like Christmas when it snows. <laughs> sure does. <laughs> well, here we are. You go ahead, Mr. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah, a little late. I I suppose the party's already started. I think so. I, I better hurry upstairs and get into my Santa Claus suit. Oh, it's in Mr. Williams' office. He told me to bring you right. Oh, in. fine, fine. You go ahead in, sir. I'll wait for you out here. Well, thank you. Hello, 
Society representative. On behalf of nearly 8,000 Equitable Society representatives, I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Next week, phone or drop a note to your nearest Equitable man. He'll be glad to bring you the fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers, revised to fit the new Social Security benefit. Or send a postcard, care of this radio station, to the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Incidents used in tonight's transcribed Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of places or persons, living or dead, is accidental. Tonight, the music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner. The author was Jerry D. Lewis. Your narrator was William Woodson, and Special Agent Taylor was played by Stacey Harris. Others in the cast were... Victor Rodman, Jeffrey Silver, Peggy Weber, Roland Winters, and Carlton Young. 
This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Larry Keating wishing you a merry, merry Christmas from the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. And inviting you to tune in again next week at the same time to This Is Your FBI. Stay tuned for the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. There's fun for the whole family when Ozzie and Harriet come your way next. Leave it to the FBI to find and return the big guy, even when they're on vacation. It's time now for the news of the day. Every Christmas Eve, people worldwide will log into the official Santa Tracker to follow the progress of the big jolly elf and his eight reindeer, and Rudolph, of course. But do you ever wonder how it all got started? Well, it started back in 1955 with a misprint in a Sears newspaper advertisement with a phone number to call Santa. But that was a misprint. And that number was actually the number of the Continental Air Defense Command, now known as NORAD, and one Colonel Harry Shoup's secret hotline. And here is the story of how it all began as told by his three children, Terry, Richard, and Pamela. This StoryCorps episode was originally aired on December 19, 2014, on NPR's Morning Edition. I remember two phones on his desk. One was this red phone. Only a four-star general at the Pentagon, and my dad had the number. This was the 50s. This was the Cold War, and he would have been the first one to know if there was an attack on the United States. So first couple weeks of December in 1955, Dad was at the office, and the red phone rang. He answered it. This is Colonel Schaup. And then there was a small voice that just asked, is this Santa Claus? Dad was very straight-laced, very disciplined. He was annoyed. He was upset. He yeah. thought, thought it was were, a joke. Yeah, and so now the little voice is it's crying. Like, <laughs> and Dad realized that it wasn't a joke. So he talked to him, ho-ho-hoed, and asked if he had been a good boy, and may I talk to your mother? And the mother got on and said, you haven't seen the paper yet? There's a phone number to call Santa. It's in the Sears ad. Dad looked it up, and there it was, his red phone number. <laughs> and they had children calling one after another. So he put a couple airmen on the phones to act like Santa Claus. It got to be a big joke at the command center. You know, the old man's really flipped his lid this time. We're answering <laughs> Santa calls. The airmen had this big glass board with the United States on it and Canada and when airplanes would come in, they would track them. And Christmas Eve of 1955, when Dad walked in, there was a drawing of a sleigh with eight reindeer coming over the North Pole. Dad said, what is that? They said, Colonel, we're sorry. We, we were just making a joke. Do you want us to take that down? Dad looked at it for a while, and next thing you know, Dad had called the radio station and had said, this is the commander at the Combat Lit Center, and we have an unidentified flying object. Why, it looks like a sleigh. <laughs> well, the radio stations would call him like every hour and say, where's Santa now? And later in life, he got letters from all over the world, people saying, thank you, Colonel, for having, you know, this sense of humor. And in his 90s, he would carry those letters around with him in a briefcase that had a lock on it, like it was top secret information. You know, he was an important guy, but this is the thing he's known for. Is probably the thing he was proudest of. Oh, I'm sure it was, yeah. 
I want to thank National Public Radio and StoryCorps for allowing us to air that explanation. And we want to remind you all to go to the Santa Tracker website on Christmas Eve to track Santa's progress. That website is located at www.noradsanta.org. That's www.noradsanta.org. And that is the news of the day. Now it's time to open another package. Let's see what's hiding under the tree. Here's a big box. Uh, Let's read the tag. Dragnet. Okay, let's open the box and see what's inside. The Big Little Jesus from December 22nd, 1953, and NBC. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to burglary division. You get a call that an important piece of religious art has been stolen from the oldest church in Los Angeles. There's no lead to its whereabouts. Your job? Find it. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, December 24th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary division. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My name's Friday. I'd gone across the street to buy stamps for some Christmas cards I was sending out. It was 9.15 a.m. when I got back to room 45. Burglary. I sat down at a table in the squad room and I started to address the cards when Frank walked in carrying a stack of Christmas boxes. Hi, Joe. Hi. Christmas cards, huh? A little late, aren't you? Well, I was going to send them out Monday, but we had that stakeout. You ought to get married, Joe. Yeah? It's the only system. Faye does all that stuff for me. Laundry, mails, cards. Only system. Might help. You got a big stack there. Ought to cut down the list. Look at this here. Upholstery shop. Yeah. They send me a card every year. I never get anything upholstered. Faye and I ought to go over our list. Cut off a few names. I brought in your present. Want to open it now? No, I'll wait. I always open a couple a day before. Why? Well, put you in the spirit ahead of time. I opened Phil's this morning. Who's he? Faye's brother in Denver. Gave me a magazine, one of those funny ones. What do you mean, a comic book? No, one of those funny ones, you know. No, I don't, Frank. Well, some of the pages have holes in them. You look through and there's a picture on the next page. Oh, yeah, I've seen those on the newsstand. They have cloth pasted in. Cloth? In the ads. If you want to buy a suit, they have a sample right there. You mean you can feel it? Reach right out and feel it. There was one for $200. A suit? Sure. Cloth comes from Scotland. What's it made out of, solid gold? No, they got a special kind of goat over there. It's real smooth. Not a goat, Frank, a sheep. Well, it's a special kind of sheep, then, because a suit costs $200. You gonna get one? I told Faye. She said, wear the sample. Anything doing? Fanning and Pryor were in on that market holdup. They come up with anything? Pound of air, nothing else. I hope it stays quiet. I got more shopping to do. I finished. What'd you get, Ann? Stationary set, some paper and envelopes, leather binding. Joe, you'll never learn. Well, what's the matter? No woman wants a stationary set. Get her something personal. Well, it's got her initials on it. 
No, no. You want something more sentimental, romantic. What'd you get, Faye? It's different in her case. What'd you get, Faye? Sewing machine. That's romantic. Well, there's no way. Why don't you buy her a catcher's mitt? Burglary Friday. Yes, that's right. You have the right department. All right, Father, we'll be right down. No, you can tell us about it there. Goodbye. The old mission church, they've had a theft. Collection money? Statue of the child Jesus. Frank and I checked out of the office and rode over to the church at the corner of Sunset Boulevard in Maine. The old mission plaza church, founded 1781. The year Los Angeles became a Pueblo. The outside was typical early Spanish design, complete with mission arches. It was made of adobe and painted white. They called it the Queen of the Angels. The Padres from down in Mexico built it. The devout Mexicans in town still attended services there. 10.05 a.m., Frank and I crossed through the courtyard. It used to be the old stable, but the Spanish priest changed all that when it became a mission. Stonemasons paved the stable floor and made it a courtyard. They planted grapevines, trees, and flowers. A young priest crossed the courtyard to meet us. He'd been sitting on a stone bench reading his morning prayers as priests had done here for 172 years. We asked for Father Xavier Rojas, who had communicated with us. We were told he was inside. We entered a side door. The church seemed to glow with the hundreds of votive candles flickering on both sides of the altar and at the shrines throughout the church. It was empty except for a few people praying. Surrounding the main altar were several old oil paintings in gold frames. The air was heavy with the scent of advent flowers. We found Father Rojas up near the sanctuary, looking at the nativity scene. He told us about the crib. It was a $70 duplication of the scene at Bethlehem. The parishioners had taken up a collection for it 31 years ago. It was put up every year on December 22nd and taken down after the holy season. It was beautiful, except that one of the shepherds had lost an arm, the sheep was old and cracked, and the infant Jesus was missing. Father Rojas led us back into the sacristy. I'm sorry to bother you, man. It's all right, Father. Especially now, the holiday season. We cash our checks, Father. You want to tell us what happened? Or what you think happened? I discovered the statue was missing right after the 6 o'clock mass. You say the 6? Yes. I started over to the rectory and stopped by the crib. Was the statue there before mass? I don't know. But it was there last night. How late is the church open? All night. You leave it wide open so any thief can walk in? Particularly thieves, Sergeant. You say it was there last night, Father. How late? 10 or 11 o'clock, we had confessions. No one saw it after that? One of the altar boys, he says it may have been there. He thinks it was. Did he see it? He's not sure. What's his name? Pardon me. Here's the schedule. You'll find the names for every mass there. Was there a big crowd at the 6 o'clock mass, Father? Not too many. Seven's the big one. People on their way to work. Did anyone stay after Mass, did you notice? Not especially. I came back here, took off the vestments. I suppose it was 10 or 15 minutes before I went back in the church. It was empty then? No, people were coming in for the 7 o'clock. Are these the older boys, James Cornine and Joseph Heffernan? That's right. Joe's the one who mentioned it might have been there. Did you check with the other priests, Father? Before I called you. None of them knows anything about it. Just for a check on the pawn shops, how much is the statue worth? In money? Well, that's the point in pawn shops, Father. Only a few dollars. We could get a new one, but it wouldn't be the same. We've had children in the parish. They've grown up and married. It's the only Jesus they know. We understand. And we've had children who died. It was the only Jesus they knew. So many of the people who come here are simple people. 
They wouldn't understand, Sergeant. It would be like changing the evening star. We'll do our best, Father. That's why it would mean so much to have it back for the first mass on Christmas. It's not very long, Father. Less than 24 hours. If anything turns up here, you know where to get in touch with us. Yes. Sad, isn't it? How's that? In so short a time, men learn to steal. Yes, but consider us, Father. Us? If some of them didn't, you and I'd be out of work. 10.50 a.m., we notified pawn shop detail. Frank and I checked out the two altar boys. The first one, James Cornine, said he knew nothing about the missing statue. The second one, Joseph Heffernan, was not at home. His father said he had a part-time job, but he'd have him get in touch with us right after lunch. By 11.30 a.m., we'd run out of book procedure. We had a man to find. Our only clue? He'd been to church. 11.33 a.m. We checked the phone books for the names of religious stores in the area. Two of them were closed. We tried the third. When we got there, the only person in the store was an elderly man sitting by a table. In front of him was a large, beautifully carved chess set. We're police officers. My name's Friday. This is my partner, Frank Smith. Great to see you. Caught me in the middle of a big chess match. Where's your partner? Up in San Jose. We've been playing for years. Same match? No, just two or three months on this one. What I meant was we've been playing different matches for years. I see. You know, we do it through the mail. I send him a move, he sends me one. Must keep you on your toes. Except during the holidays, the mail gets all fiddled up. That's no good. Guess not. Slows things down, that's no good. I like to catch him off guard. You Mr. Flavin? How do you know? We never met. Your name's on the window out front. Mr. Flavin, we checked the other two religious stores in this neighborhood. They're closed. This is the best one anyway. 50% European items. We're checking the stores around the Mission Church. For what? Statue of the Child Jesus. Do you have one we could look at? Sure. No, sir, a larger one. You don't want a larger one, unless it's for a church. That's why you want a larger one. Could we see it, please? It's not my due to butt in, but unless you live in a big place, this will make your living room all a kilter. Yes, sir. Do most of the people who go to the Mission Church trade here? Good many of them, especially the kids. Why kids? More religious. Check on yourself. See if kids aren't more religious than you. Might be so. That's what's wrong with the world. Oh, I don't mean you're wrong with it. Everybody. Yes, sir. What if we could stick to the point, Mr. Flavin? Sure. A lot of people from the Mission Church come in here. Do people ever come in and sell back a religious article? Like a prayer book or rosaries? Yes, sir. Second hand, you mean? Yes, sir. Not since I've ever been around. It's silly. Why? People don't have religious articles so they can get rid of them. They have them so they can have them. But if a man had a statue and wanted to sell it, he'd come to a place like this. Sure, but he wouldn't want to sell it. He would if it was stolen. No, sir. If a man was to steal a statue, he'd be crazy or something like that. The only place he'd want to go is where crazy people are. You may be right, Mr. Flavin. I don't know what you fellows are looking for, but if it's somebody who stole a statue, he's crazy and you won't find him. You won't find him as long as you live or in a million years. That should cover it. We checked religious stores out as far as Van Ness. We asked the same questions. The owners gave us the same answers, but none of them were as encouraging as Mr. Flavin. Frank and I had lunch and reported back to the office. It was 1.30 p.m. when we started into the squad room. The captain was just coming out. I just checked for you in the lunchroom. Yeah, we've been out on that theft at the mission. May get some action on the Patterson case. They locate him? They think he's on the bus from Sacramento. Well, that means the Bakersfield police. We'll wait and see. I 
One of you fellows, Sergeant Friday? He is. I'm Joe Heffernan. My father said you wanted to see me. Well, sit down, son. You didn't have to come in. A phone call would have worked. My father said to get on over. He says that any kid that uses phones is lazy. We want to ask you about this morning. You serve 6 o'clock mass? Yes, sir. I'm senior boy, so I get the 6. You're a senior and you take the early trick? Yes, sir. That way, if you receive communion, you get to have breakfast sooner. Father Rojas says you think the statue was there before mass. I didn't look, but I have a feeling it was there. A feeling? You know, how you have a feeling about something, but you're not sure. Did you stay around long after mass? I put out the candles and hung up my surplus. How long would that take? About five minutes, maybe. Did any of the people at mass stay on? Some moms do, especially ladies. Oh? Maybe they don't finish in time. Or else they start new prayers. I don't know. So when you left, there were still some women there? No, sir. That was at first. After I went back to the sacristy, there was only this one man. What man? He comes at 6 o'clock all the time. Do you know his name? No, sir. But he works down in Olive. You know, paint shop. Where they paint signs. Could you describe him? Sort of medium. He's wearing a suit that didn't match. Didn't match? You know, different pants than coat. How about his age? Oh, he's pretty old. Take a guess. About 40, maybe. There's nothing particular about him. Then why'd you notice him? I've seen him before. And the bundle, I guess. The bundle? Out in front. I saw him when he was coming out. He had this bundle. And he almost dropped it. How large a bundle? It's hard to say. Come on, son. Was it large or small, the size of the statue? About that big. Yes, sir. located the sign shop. The suspect didn't work there anymore, but we discovered his name was Claude Stroop. We found out where he lived. 2.25 p.m., we arrived there. It was a hotel for men, mostly old men, mostly down and outers. It was called the Golden Dream. Police officers, we're looking for Claude Stroop. Hope Claude didn't get in any trouble. So do we, is he in? No, he's got room 307. You can check if you like. We'll take your word. Were you on this morning? Hmm? Yeah, the early shift. Well, we don't have shifts. My uncle owns the place. I'm the shift. Did Stroop spend last night here? Came in about 11. When did he leave this morning? Around 6, maybe before. Did he come back after? 8 o'clock or so. Then left. Supposed to be back at 10. And pulls this trick. What trick? Our program. He knows the other fellas need him. Program? You're here at the hotel. Every Christmas we have a program. Put up a tree and sing. They're mostly old fellas. Singing like that makes them remember back when they were kids. Then Jimmy Finn comes on. Jimmy Finn? He shares number 409. His family once had a lot of money, so he tells the fellas about it. Stories about Christmas. How they had this big log, and his grandfather used to start it up, and after dinner, everybody turned over his plate, and there underneath was a $20 gold piece. Brand new one. When Stroop came in this morning, did he have a bundle? I didn't see him come in. You said you saw him. I saw him go out after, but not come in. When was that? Eight. If you want to look for a bundle, I could give you his key. We don't have a warrant. It's all right. I know about police. It's all right with me. It's not with us. I didn't mean that. I, I just meant it was all right with me. Good King Wenceslas, look down on the feast of Stephen. There were three old men. We couldn't tell how much better they would have been with Stroop singing the fourth part, but somehow you didn't care. This was Christmas at the Golden Dream, and it sounded fine. Was cruel when the poor man came in sight. 
gathering winter fuel. This is the last rehearsal. I got most of the songs down pat. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, that's why it's a shame Claude isn't here. He's tenor and they need him to make it sound just right. Does Troop have a job? No, sir. He used to have jobs. Not much lately, though. Did he say where he was going? No, he should have. The fellas need him. When he comes in, will you call us? Sure, and uh, not say anything to him. That's right. I hope it's nothing serious for Claude. Fellas' troubles ought to be over. Troubles? Way back. It wouldn't count. Now. Tell us anyway. Well, I don't know much about it. As much as you know. Now, come on. Well, something back where he used to live. He robbed somebody or something. What else? That's all. It was a long time ago, way far back. But he forgot it all, the robbing and everything. No, not quite. Hmm? He remembered it this morning. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ our Savior was born upon this day to save back to the office and ran Stroop's name through R&I. If he'd been booked anywhere, we had no record of it, at least not under that name. 4.15 p.m., pawn shop detail reported back. No object resembling the statue of the child Jesus had been turned in. 4.18 p.m., I hung up the phone. Patterson's on that Sacramento bus. I thought Bakersfield had it. They were supposed to confirm they did. Hop over the station. What about Fanning and Pryor? They're still out. Well, they'll be back soon. When's the bus arrive? Six o'clock. Well, there's plenty of time for him to make it. There's more time for you. We're still on that theft. Can it wait? No. What is it? Ten, fifteen dollar statue? When's the price determine a case? I realize it's a church statue, but that doesn't give it priority. It's important to them, Captain. Joe and I promised to get it back. What do you got on it? Nothing much. And why are you so big hearted? Burglary Friday. When? No. Don't say anything. No. Right. It's Claude Stroop. He just walked into the hotel. He's our suspect. Nobody's leaked to him? No. You'll keep. You can run him down tomorrow. It'll be too late then. They need it for the first mass in the morning, Skipper. It's kind of a big thing for them. I'm sorry. I can't juggle details around so you can get a statue back. If there's time later on, we'll do our best. Yes, sir. You better get over to the station. Yes, sir. Will you call Father Rojas over at the mission? Why? Tell him we're too busy to work on that statue. But we'll do it later. Tomorrow or when we get a chance. Why can't you call him? Well, we better get over to the station. If Patterson's on that bus, we don't want to miss him. All right, I'll call him. Friday. Yeah. I can send Fanning in priority. Might as well stay on that other thing. Whatever you say, Captain. Four forty-three p.m. We arrived at the Golden Dream Hotel. The desk clerk was right. Claude Stroop looked like a man who'd had his troubles at bargain rates. Your name Claude Stroop? Yes, sir. Police officers, we'd like to talk to you. I didn't do anything against the law. Honest, I didn't do anything against it. You haven't been accused. I want to take you downtown. We'd like to talk to you. No, sir, I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to talk to anybody. You're half wrong already. p.m. We returned Stroop for interrogation. He kept his word. He refused to talk. 6.05 p.m. Frank called Faye, told her he'd be a little late. 
Stroop didn't move for a whole hour. He sat and stared, but he didn't talk. 6.40 p.m. We got a final report from pawn shop detail. The shops were closed. There was no statue. Stroop still hadn't talked. Don't you ever want to go home, Stroop? If I was to talk, he wouldn't let me go. Depends on what you'd say. I'd say it wrong, and I wouldn't get home. You won't this way either. I'd like to go. You can bet on that. This is the seventh year we had the program, and I never missed a one. Not a single one. Why don't you tell us what happened, Stroop? How would I know you'd let me go? You wouldn't. I might as well anyway. All right, what happened from mass on? Well, there was mass. I came out and started down toward the hotel. Back up. I left my stuff at the hotel, and then I picked up George's car. I didn't steal it. He said I could have it any time I wanted. Only this time I didn't ask him. I took it and started out. Yeah. I should have asked, but I just didn't. I went over to Grand Avenue for the Christmas bulbs for this fellow sells them secondhand. It was coming out of the lot that I did it. Yeah. The bumper must have caught the other car. Didn't leave too big a dent, but there was this long scratch. I got out and tried to wipe it off with my handkerchief. You know, spit on it like. Only didn't do no good. I didn't think anybody saw. I don't know how you fellas found out about it. I'll check auto records. Right. Stroop, we didn't bring you down here to talk about that. You didn't? No. There's a statue missing from the church. The statue of the child Jesus. You mean I took it? You took a bundle out of church? Yes, sir. That was my other pants for the program tonight. I had a place sewed up and there was a button on it. You can check. But I wouldn't take a statue. I don't think you would either. He's clear at auto records. One home. For the program? You mean it's all right? Good night, Stroop. p.m. We found Father Rojas. Frank told him how it was, that we couldn't get the statue back by morning, but that we'd keep trying during the week. He said he understood. We told him we had to get on. As Frank and I started to leave, the doors at the main entrance to the church opened. It was a good 200 feet away. It was hard to be sure, but it looked like a small boy drawing a bright red wagon behind him. When he got closer, you could see he was no bigger than a pint of milk. He was a luminous-eyed little Mexican boy with a face as young as yesterday. The priest seemed to know him. Paquito? In the back of the wagon was the missing statue of the child Jesus. He picked it up gently and walked up to the priest. Father Rojas? He just stood there looking up at Father Rojas. It's Paco Mendoza. 
the boy from the parish. Ask him where he found it. Donde lo encontraste? No lo encontré, lo cogí esta mañana. He didn't find it, he took it. Why? Por qué? Todos los años Paquito rezó por un camioncito rojo. Este año Paquito rezó al niño Jesús. Yo prometí al niño Jesús el primer viaje en mi camioncito. He says all through the years he's prayed for a red wagon. This year he prayed to the child Jesus. He promised that if he got the wagon, the child Jesus would have the first ride in it. He wants to know if the devil will come and take him to hell. That's your department, Father. No el diablo. Jesus ama a Paquito mucho. We crossed over to the sanctuary. With the help of Father Rojas, the young boy replaced the infant Jesus in its rightful place, the crib in the nativity scene. Frank and I could have been wrong, but the small plaster statue seemed to approve. Mary, Joseph, the wise men, Gaspar, Melchior, Balthazar, the old shepherd, the young shepherd, the peasant, they all seemed to approve. Vuelve a tu casa, Paquito. Priest told the boy to go home. He took hold of his wagon, started the long walk out of the church. There wasn't much we could say. There wasn't much to say. We just stood there and watched him go. Halfway up, he turned to look back, and he went on out. I don't understand how he got that wagon today. Don't kids wait for Santa Claus anymore? It isn't from Santa Claus. The firemen fix old toys and give them to new children. Paquito's family, they're poor. of Chesterfield, Liggett and Myers Tobacco Company, there are over 6,000 wholesale distributors and 1,300,000 retail dealers, and of course all of us on Dragnet. We'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. The Little Big Jesus from Dragnet.
I find it so comforting when I see people remember those who are less fortunate than they are. And in this most difficult time, we need to remember to help those who are struggling. And with that, I'd like to take just a few moments to take you all back to 1940. The British were struggling under the Blitz, and Edward R. Murrow describes a grim Christmas in England. From CBS Radio on December 24, 1940, Edward R. Murrow. Christmas Day began in London nearly an hour ago. The church bells did not ring at midnight. When they ring again, it will be to announce invasion. And if they ring, the British are ready. And all along the coast of this island, the observers revolve in their reclining chairs, listening for the sound of German planes. The firefighters and the ambulance drivers are waiting too. The blackout stretches from Birmingham to Bethlehem. But tonight, over Britain, the skies are clear. This is not a merry Christmas in London. I've heard that phrase only twice in the last three days. This afternoon, as the stores were closing, as shoppers and office workers were hurrying home, one heard such phrases as, so long, Mamie, and good luck, Jack, but never a merry Christmas. It can't be a Merry Christmas. For those people who spend tonight and tomorrow by their firesides in their own homes realize that they have bought this Christmas with their nerve, their bodies, and their old buildings. Their nerve is unshaken. The casualties have not been large. And there are many old buildings still untouched. Tonight, there are a few Christmas parties in London. A few expensive dinners at famous hotels. But there are no fancy paper hats and no firecrackers. I should like to add my small voice to give my own Christmas greetings to friends and colleagues at home. Merry Christmas. So long. And good luck. Ah, the train under the Christmas tree. Who could not be reminded of an old-time Christmas celebration. The BBC, or British Broadcasting Corporation, was and is one of the largest worldwide broadcasters providing news and entertainment to the world. In many places, people would tune their radios to the BBC so they could hear the latest news about the war. On December 25, 1940, the BBC presented their annual Christmas show. From across the United Kingdom, reporters would report on the citizens and how they were celebrating Christmas under wartime conditions, and the king would give his annual Christmas message. So let's go back to Christmas Day 1940 and the BBC Christmas program. a Welsh hymn, a hymn of joy and sacrifice. In that spirit we carry on, ere is or no, and for long as this war lasts, these furnaces shall never go cold. We'll keep them as warm as the voices of those boys singing, and as warm as the greeting from Wales I now send to you. To our boys in the air, on sea, and on land, to the people in battered cities and towns throughout Britain, to our fellow workers in the mines, 
in the factories and the fields. Aye. And to the women, God bless them, whose courage is our pride. To you all, a Welsh greeting. Nadoli Cowen, a bended you. A happy Christmas, and God be with you. seen the empire and the country in action this Christmas day. Underneath it all, we've felt that spirit of companionship and neighborliness, which must be the foundation of the world of peace. And now, when we return to London, it isn't because other cities aren't in the front line as well as London. We turn to London because here we have the largest collection of human beings who stood up to the greatest aerial bombardment the world's ever known. Let's look at London on the alert, the firefighters of London, men who in the last three months have gone out night after night to the fires in the Blitz and by their courage and daring have saved thousands of lives. We salute them this Christmas day and through them all the workers in our civil defence services all over Britain. So over to London's East End to see what sort of a Christmas men of the fire services are having. First of all, we would like to wish you all a happy Christmas, especially to all other fire brigades. To this, I would like to add my personal greetings to my family who are evacuated. We are down in the basement here, as it is a bit drafty upstairs due to the loss of windows. We have had quite a packet since the blitz started. We started off with a bang when we got one the first night. That night left some empty places, and we are thinking of those fellows today. But most of all... But most of us are still here, ready for anything. You see, this is just another day for us, and we are all ready for whatever turns up. Here are some of the men and the girls who are on, on duty today. Can't I? You start. Well, this year, it's Christmas under fire with a vengeance. It's not the best way to spend Christmas, but a bit back, some of us didn't expect to see another Christmas at all. Things were a bit hot in more ways than one. What do you say, Tom? Well, they were hot, all right. A bit too hot. And I'll tell you one thing about fires, too. I'd rather sight be sitting around my own fire now instead of waiting to put other people's fires out. I'll say, we've got that man to thank for that. There's one place I'd like to start a fire, and that's not far from him. I've got something to say to him, too. Look at me sitting at the telephone. I can't even call out my boyfriend. <laughs> ah. ah, but the food's pretty good. The wallop as well, I'll say. <laughs> it's the first time my wife and I have been apart at Christmas. She's down in the country living with a kitty. So here's wishing Peg, Ma and Dad a happy Christmas. We're, uh, we're not so bad here. So don't start worrying. You're next, sir. I've had plenty of Christmases at work before because I was a merchant seaman before I joined the fire business. So here's good luck to all the chaps in the merchant navy and to Ada and Mum. Keep at it. Hello, Elsie. Hello, Mum. Dad, a Merry Christmas. Come, Miss Julius. What about you? Well, I come from South Africa. So hello, everybody out there, and a happy Christmas to you all. I suppose you are enjoying your Christmas in the sunshine. I am enjoying mine in a fire station. 
We are thrilled to hear how you are holding the line down there. Well, and now it's time to go over the road. Merry Christmas, mateys. Hello, everybody. We're not having a bad time here. There's dispatch riders and drivers, and we've got a few friends along too. We've covered all the walls with streamers, and they'll come in handy soon for the victory parade. In the meantime, we've got a bit of work to do, and if anybody wants a rider, well, it's just bad luck on that chap. Good old shorty. Come on, your turn next. All right, all right. Anybody would think I never did any work. I don't know. Well, do you? Yes. Quiet your beast. Come on, Brownie. What about signing out that brother of yours in Palestine? Sure, it's not a bad idea. If Driver Brown's listening, he's wishing him good luck and all the rest of the chaps there also. Now, quiet a moment, lad. The dispatch is wanted over at 28 immediately. Not an MP. Come on, Shorty. Come on, Shorty. Come on. Oh, well, I mean, what about someone else? They've always got me on Like the citizens of many of our towns this Christmas, Londoners have been forced to adapt their lives to war conditions. Many of them have lost their homes, although they go on with their work uninterrupted. But the vast majority, nearly 90% of them, go on living and sleeping in their own houses. But a great many Londoners do have to spend their nights in shelters. And it's no joke, this shelter life at any time, with its hardship and strain, the lack of privacy, not having your own things around you. But its grimness seems to strike us even more at Christmas. Christmas in the shelter, driven underground. What a paradox, it seems. Of course, the people who shelter are making the best of it. They make the best of everything at Christmas. And you can't kill the spirit of Christmas even in these gloomy modern catacombs. Even there, it shines like a star. Let's go over to one of London's communal shelters and see how the shelter marshal and his people are preparing for Christmas night below ground. We have had weeks of preparation for this celebration underground. And now we are just putting the final touches to everything. Of course, the bulk of our people aren't down yet, except a few of the very early ones. But all the same, it's an animated scene. Can I have some sort of coat from the wardrobe, Mr. Sangster? Oh, later, please, Mr. Dally. He's broadcasting. Well, my own's been bombed out. In between the sandbagged partitions, the wooden bunks, one above the other, are decorated with flags and streamers. And across the arched roof, our guests have hung great festoons of coloured paper. Who won the prize, Mr. Sangster? There's time enough for that, Mrs. Hill. That's a competition in decorations we've had between the sections. I'm announcing that at the concert tonight. We left the decoration of the place to them, and a very good job they've made of it. They have had enough of our, on our own hands, getting in a Christmas tree, and the food for the banquet and a present for every child. Oh, Mr. Sangster. Yes, Doris. Is that right? Father Christmas is coming. Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he does, dear. I think this must be the strangest home that Santa Claus will ever have visited. For home it is for most of these guests of ours. The only home they've got. Our motto is, our aim is to give you security, cheerfulness and sleep. So sleep if you can. We get our courage in our sleep. Mr. Sangster? Not now, Doris. May I have that doll up there? Afterwards, my dear, not now. And now I'm going to turn you over to the sister who will be able to tell you some of the details of the banquet. Now, sister, it's your turn. Well, there's really not very much to say. 
except that we're doing our best and we think we're going to be able to give everybody a very good time. It's taken quite a while to lay in food for all these people. About 500 of us are going to sit down. Lovely. Are we sitting down to it? Yes, a regular sit-down feed. Lovely. Lovely. Yes, sit down. We have cleared a whole section to sit down at big tables. Just like a family Christmas dinner in the old days. Most of them have paid a little towards the celebration. Not much, but it gives everyone a sense of responsibility. But even if they haven't been able to pay well, it's just the same. The very best food we can get. And a bit extra in the way of bonbons. Ain't it fine? And afterwards, crackers for everyone. When can I have that doll, Mr. Sangster? Oh, Doris, are you back again? Not now, dear. We're broadcasting. We have been able to hire all the plates we need, but everybody is supposed to bring their own forks and spoons and so on. It's wonderful where the money and the help comes from, with so many people bombed out of their homes. Still, we are going to have a Merry Christmas in spite of Hitler. Hi, Mr. Costin, you didn't fold your blankets this morning. Sorry, sir, I was hurry. Well, if you want to leave them here during the day, you'll have to fold them up before you get in this cramped shelter life, everything counts. Every inch of space, every act of kindness and thoughtfulness. We get used to it after a time and come to accept it as normal. But we must never forget that it is not normal. It is the direct opposite of the home life that the war has taken away from so many of us. There may be more elaborate parties going on elsewhere today, I quite think there are. But there's certainly none with more of the true spirit of Christmas. More cheerfulness, more friendliness, more neighborliness and determination to make the best of things. And so, from this underground shelter, we Londoners send our greetings to you who are listening all over the world. To our friends, to our empire and to our king. That's Christmas in one of London's underground shelters. We're all hoping it'll be the last. And now, for our final picture, we go to one of London's homes. Just an ordinary home, this. It's one of a row in a suburban street with both a number and a name. Today, it's not quite as ordinary as it was a few months ago. Some of the neighboring houses in the row aren't there anymore. Some of its windows are broken and patched with brown paper. But behind the patched-up windows, everything's warm and bright. It's the home of one of London's mothers. She'll tell you what it's like to spend Christmas under fire. This Christmas will be very quiet for a lot of middle-aged mothers. Take me, for instance. My children are away. My son is in the Air Force. My daughter is living on a farm. And my two grandchildren are evacuated to the country. We always used to spend Christmas together, but we have parted this year for the first time. And it's bound to be a bit lonely, you know. Most people of our age are staying behind, and it's the little ones we miss. We've had 22 window panes out here, and a bomb behind us in the next street. That whole French window has got to come out one of these days. 
Well, we've been through some bad times. We have. But sitting here on Christmas Day, I've been thinking of the last war and its food problems and how we used to have to stand in queues hoping to get a few potatoes. I went through all that with three little children. I lost one of them. It's a horrible thing is war, but you know in a way it has its compensations. It's made us realise how good and kind most people are and that's a great comfort in the middle of all this anxiety. We've all got our ration books. There are no favours asked or given. There's a feeling of fairness and goodwill which keeps people cheerful. An invitation to share that tea ration over a friendly chat is such a good way of helping the lonely ones round about us. One morning, after a heavy air raid, I saw a woman standing at her gate looking at the destruction all around her. I stopped and made a remark about it and the terrible experience she must have had. Then she said, I've seen you in this world for years. Yes, I said and it's taken a bomb to make us speak. I went onto the stationer who said, don't say you've come to tell me you're going away. That's all I've heard this morning from my customers. Well, I'm not going away. And in spite of all we've been through, I'm thankful for a great deal. When peace comes along at last, we've all got to see that this spirit of neighborliness and sympathy is carried on and not forgotten. And now, on behalf of all the men and women of the Empire, and all who are listening on this Christmas Day, it is my great privilege to offer our greetings to their majesties, our King and Queen. From the bottom of our hearts, God bless them both. That heartfelt greeting to our King and the Royal Family from one of the bond homes of London is echoed throughout the world in the hearts and homes of our friends and kinsmen. They are waiting, as we are in their homes, to listen to the voice of His Majesty the King. together in our homes, the young and old, to enjoy the happy festivity and goodwill which the Christmas message brings. It is, above all, Children's Day, and I am sure that we shall all do our best to make it 
a happy one for them, wherever they may be. Wool, bring, among other sorrows, the sadness of separation. There are many in the forces away from their homes today. And because they must stand ready and alert to resist the invader, should he dare to come, or because they are guarding the dark seas, or pursuing the beaten foe in the Libyan a desert. Many family circles are broken. Children from English homes are today in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. For not only has the manhood of the whole British Commonwealth rallied once more to the aid of the mother country in her hour of need, but the peoples of the empire have eagerly thrown open the doors of their homes to our children so that they may be spared from the strain and danger of modern war. And in the United States also, where we find so many generous, loyal friends and organizations to give us unstinted help, warm-hearted people are keeping and caring for many of our children until the war is over. But how many more children are there here who have been moved from their homes to safer quarters? To all of them, at home and abroad, who are separated from their fathers and mothers, to their kind friends and hosts, and to all who love them, and to parents who will be lonely without them. From all in our dear island, I wish every happiness that Christmas can bring. May the new year carry us towards victory and to happier Christmas days when everyone will be at home together in the years to come. To the older people here and throughout the world, I would say, in the last great war, 
and the flower of our youth was destroyed. And the rest of the people saw but little of the battle. This time, we are all in the front line and the danger together. And I know that the older among us are proud that it should be so. Remember this. If war brings separation, it brings a new unity also. A unity which comes from common perils and common sufferings are willingly shared. To be good comrades and good neighbors in trouble is one of the finest opportunities of the civilian population. And by facing hardships and discomfort, cheerfully and resolutely, not only do they do their own duty, but they play their part in helping the fighting services to win the war. Time and again, during these last few months, I have seen for myself battered towns and cities of England, and I have seen the British people facing their ordeal. I can say to them all, that they may be justly proud of their race and nation. On every side I have seen a new and splendid spirit of good fellowship springing up in adversity, a real a desire to share the burdens and resources alike. Out of all this suffering, there is growing a harmony which we must carry forward into the days to come. When we have endured to the end, and ours is the victory, then when Christmas days are happy again, and goodwill has come back to the world. We must hold fast to the spirit which binds us all together now. We shall need the spirit in each of our own lives as men and women, and shall need it even more among the nations of the world. We must go on thinking less about ourselves 
and more for one another. For so, and so only, can we hope to make the world a better place and life a worthier thing. And now I wish you all a happy Christmas and a happier New Year. We may look forward to it with sober confidence. We have surmounted a grave crisis. We do not underrate the dangers and difficulties which confront us still. But we take courage and comfort from the successes which our fighting men and their allies have won at heavy odds by land and air and sea. The future will be hard, but our feet are planted on the path of victory. And with the help of God, we shall make our way to justice and to peace. Christmas message during World War II and the BBC Christmas show. Okay, who would have thought that the last package under the tree would be an episode of suspense? Well, to tell the truth, when I ran across this episode entitled A Korean Christmas Carol, I thought that this was going to be some kind of scary Christmas program, but I was wrong. Suspenseful? Oh yeah, you bet. So now from CBS, December 20th, 1959, we bring Suspense, a Korean Christmas Carol. And now, another tale well calculated to keep you in... The time, Christmas, 1958. The place, Korea. The story, a Korean Christmas Carol, written for suspense by George Bamberg. Sounds good, doesn't it? You hear Tick Ping, I mean. 
I can't understand the language, but I know what they mean. They sound so fresh and full of promise. Almost as if they knew. But uh, then I'm getting ahead of myself. The name's Connolly, PSC Larry Connolly. I'm a soldier in Korea. I was sent here just about a year ago, this time. That's where this strange story begins. Christmas, 1958. Christmas was for me that year miserable. I've been stuck on guard the night before, and so I planned to stay in bed the next day and forget about Christmas. I hadn't counted on my first sergeant. Since I was the first man he came to in the barracks, it's only logical that I should be the man he picks to drive a truck all the way to stolen back. It was night by the time I got on the road, headed back from Seoul. It started to snow. Big plates coming down soft at first, then so thick and fast I could hardly see. I was just over that first range of mountains. I was starting on the twisting, slippery way down when I saw him. The side of him scared me wide awake. He was standing bareheaded, the wind whipping the snow and his hair around his face. When he raised his thumb, I had the strangest feeling he'd been expecting me. Almost as if it were unnecessary. As if he knew I'd suck. You want a lift? I'm going as far as Camp Santa Barbara. Where's that? You mean where's that? Everybody knows where Camp Santa Barbara is. Don't stand there with the door open. Hop in. All right. <laughs> well, you picked a lousy place to hitchhike. It didn't stop. Oh, thanks. Stop your gloves. Your hands look half frozen. Gloves? Well, I, uh, must have lost them. Must have, don't you know? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, sure. I must have left them laying on the counter of the PX back there. Was your hat back there, too? No, no, I... Lost my hat in the dark. I fell. I suppose that's why your uniform's muddy and your jacket's torn. Oh, yes, yes, that's right, of course. I uh, was walking along the edge of the road and I slipped in the dark. And I slid halfway down the embankment before I could stop. I right, see so you managed to hang on to your bag. Oh, yeah, I can't afford to lose that. It's important. I'm late as it is. What else did you from? Third Recon, 7th Division Infantry. Infantry? No artillery up this way. The infantry station about seven miles back. You're heading the wrong direction. Yeah, well, third recon is a special detachment. We're off in the hills. All by ourselves. It's just off this road. I heard of it before. My name's Connolly. Larry Connolly. What's yours? Oh, thanks. Mine's Richard Dombrowski. Good to know you, Dombrowski. Yeah. Hey, look, if you can let go of that bag long enough, I'll let you wear my gloves till your hands warm up. Oh, no. Thanks. That's all right. I'll put them in my pocket. Say, is it okay if I shut my bag on the floor? Oh, sure, no sweat. Mm-hmm. Say, you don't have a cigarette, do you? I'm fresh out. Well, I don't know. I... Wait a minute. Yeah, here's some. Uh, let me light it for you, though. You watch the road. I saw a whole truckload of troops disappear over that curve up ahead. Killed all but two. Yeah? When well, uh, that happened? 1951. 1951? Yep. You were here when the war was on. I guess you could say that. Tell me, Dombrowski, what were you doing Christmas Day? That they didn't send you all the way to Seoul with an empty truck on a wild goose chase. <laughs> what I did today. What did you do seven years ago? Well, you see those lights up ahead? That's the village of Chungju Ri. We marched through there the day before Christmas. You scared? Oh, I think everybody's scared. Hey, hey, look out. You'll bring yourself. What's the matter? 
cigarette burned all the way down to your fingers. Oh. You're burning it? Was that? No, no. I, I guess it burned itself out before it got to my skin. Anyway, you see that hill over there? Well, Christmas Day, 1951, my platoon was all dug in around that hill. No kidding. Mm-hmm. We went out on a patrol from that hill. And that was one time I was plenty scared. As a matter of fact, it happened just seven years ago tonight. It hadn't snowed that day, but there was snow on the ground. I can remember because the guys were joking that at least we had a white Christmas. And what a Christmas it was. turkey up to us, so we were relatively comfortable and happy until Brownie, our squad leader, came back from a talk with the old man. All right, I'll take the first prize. The old man wants us to go out and have a look around. Come on, come on, knock it off. Get rid of your dog tags and canteens, anything that might rattle or make a noise. We won't be gone long, but we're moving light. Hey, Whitey, might as well leave your helmet here. We want to move quiet. But, Sarge, it's too cold to go off without a hat. Ah, shut the comedy, Walker. We moved out on schedule just as night was falling. And with the night came the cold. We moved rapidly along the valley for about an hour or so when Brownie stopped and raised his hand. All right, you men, hold it up. Once we get on the other side of that ridge up ahead, we'll observe maximum security. No talking, no light. Keep down and watch where you put your big clumsy feet. Yeah. These people just love tripwires with players attacked. Walker, you still got the walkie-talkie? If I didn't, I wouldn't be here to tell you about it. Uh-huh. So working... Warm, if that's what you mean. That's more than I can say for myself. All right, keep it that way. We may need it if we run into trouble. Hey, while we're here, let's take one last check on your gear. Make sure your rifle bolts aren't frozen, weapons aren't facing, and all grenades are secure in the pin. Okay, everybody set? Let's move out. <laughs> I never realized how light and easy it was to carry a rifle before. The going was easy. The rice paddies were frozen over and covered with snow, and we stepped carefully between the clumps of rice stubble left over from the last harvest, so the dry straw made no noise. We walked steadily, quietly, maybe 200 yards without a sound, regularly stepping up and over each low rice paddy wall as we came to it, each one bringing us just that much closer to the top. And then it happened. Somebody must have tripped the wire because suddenly the inky black was transformed into the merciless point of the operating table. Everything seemed stopped and slowed down, just like an old movie before the projector blows up. I could see the other guys, the hills, and the deadly, winking fires of the guns. And then we fell down to the protection of the earth. And some of us fell with metal in our bodies. Crawl, crawl, you wait. Crawl to the mudside. Crawl, they can't hit us there. And we crawled, digging our knees and fingers into the frozen mud until they were bruised and torn. We crawled closer to the ground and faster than we ever had before. We crawled to the sanctuary of a foot-high mud hill. Keep your head down. We got a spin. 
was about 150 yards to our front. Where's the other? There was 200 yards to the left. I think I was printed a crossfire. Well, never get out of here. Oh, I know what. Now, don't panic. If you head down, we'll make it out. Walker, see if you can raise Lady's Wolf on the walkie-talkie. Walker? Walker's laying out there in the middle of a paddy, Brownie. Huh? He's never going to have to worry about being warm again. Smith's out there, too. I saw him get it. I saw it when the flare went up. I saw him catch it in the face. Okay, okay, Harry, easy. He's still got the walkie-talkie. Can you see if it's all right? He's laying on it. It's hard to tell. Why do you? That flare is going to go out mighty quick. If a man was fast, he could probably freak out there and back before they put up another one. We can use that walkie-talkie to call up some artillery to get these monkeys off our back. I can't, Brownie. I, I must have been hit. I can't move my legs anymore. I, I can't even feel them. Easy. Are you bleeding bad? No. Harry, you all right? As far as I know. Stephen? Sure. I'd like to take a whirl at that walkie-talkie. Uh, wait till that flare burns out. It's dying now. It's a few more seconds. Go! By the time the flare lit the sky, Stevens was halfway back, the walkie-talkie dangling from his right hand. So far from the midair, some huge, invisible hand slapped into the ground. I'm dead. Oh, God, I'm dead. Hey, quiet. Where'd they get you? I'm dead. I'm dead. Look him over, Harry. They busted his arm. See any other places? No, no, I guess his arm. Wrap a dressing around it and butt that inside his jacket. Hand me that walkie-talkie. No good, Ronnie. The walkie-talkie smashed. What? Get you for it. We're going to have to move out of here fast. Well, how are we going to pull out? We can't crawl back down the paddy. They'll slaughter All right, all right, look. We'll move along the dike to the edge of the rice paddy. From there, we can duck into the underbrush and move back down the mountain. We'll never make it. They'll spot us when we try to make it across the clearing to the underbrush. They'll swing their guns around. we got to try it. We can't stay here. Stephen, can you crawl? Yeah, I can make it. Okay, and you lead off, and I'll follow you. I'll crawl backwards and pull Whitey along behind me. Whitey? You heard me. But we'll never make it. Quiet. Quiet. All you have to do, Harry, is follow along behind and pick up the pieces. Take his weapon. It'll make him lighter. Keep your hands off me, Harry. Come on, Whitey. We haven't any time to fool around. I'm not fooling. I'm not going with you guys. Come on. You've lost too much blood already. That's just this. Like you said, Brownie, it's only a matter of time. You can't get anywhere with me. You'll never even get past the clearing trying to drag me across. You're smart enough to know that, Brownie. It'll be tough enough, even with two good legs. We're not leaving you here. That's what I figured you'd say, Brown. I'm still in charge here. I figured you'd say that, too. Brown, you see this grenade? It doesn't have any pin in it. The only thing that keeps the spring from kicking the clip off is my hand. Knock it out of here, Brownie, before I let it go. Why, why do you want me to let loose of this grenade? Now pop that VAR up in the dike in front of me. And scatter the clip so I can get at them. I'll wait until you guys get to the edge of the paddy before I open up. Look, lady. I'm still holding the grenade, Brownie. Time is running out. You're going to have to hurry. I feel like I want to fall asleep, and I don't know how much longer I can stay awake. Just wish me a, a very Merry Christmas and beat it. Merry Christmas, why? All right, you guys, what are you waiting for? Let's move out. That's right, this is Christmas. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still What's the matter? Don't you people like Christmas carols? A machine gun fire always was better getaway music than Christmas carols. Above thy dark and dreaming. Whitey lay there until the others had crawled to the end of a low rice paddy wall. And then he threw his grenade. 
exploded, he opened up with the BAR, making enough noise to make the enemy think the patrol was launching an attack. Both machine gun nests zeroed in on him. But Whitey stayed well below the little mud wall of the rice paddy, humming his Christmas carol, loading the BAR with a fresh clip every time it went empty, and perhaps wondering briefly why he was going to die so far away from home. A little pond of frozen mud he didn't care about or even own. Still firing and singing. Even after the rest of the squad had escaped into the underbrush. And until either the machine gunners found their mark. Or else he finally fell asleep. Gosh. He was quite a guy. No, I... I guess it was just the detail that had to be done, and he had to do it. Well, there's my stop right there where that little road turns off up ahead. There's detachments up that road? That's right, right at the end of it. Well, sure, I've seen that road before, but I didn't think there was anything up there. <laughs> but just let me out here. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks a lot. No sweat. Say, <laughs> uh, if you ever want to look me up, remember my outfit's all the way up at the end of this road. I'll be right up there. Okay, I'll drop in sometime. Right. So long, and thanks again. I drove off figuring it would be a very cold day in Korea before I ever looked him up. Such a weird guy gave me the creeps. I got about five miles down the road when I discovered he left his bag sitting on the floor of the deuce and a half. Took a lot of arguing with myself, but uh, I decided that the only decent thing I could do was to swing around and take it back to him. Maybe I could stop in the orderly room and check him out. Find out what his story really was. On the way back, I almost missed the road because it was so small and seldom used. I drove up it for about ten minutes. I was beginning to wonder if I hadn't gotten the wrong road after all. I passed no other vehicles or GIs or anything to indicate there was an infantry company around. Just when I was ready to turn back to the main road, I saw a light twinkling up ahead from what looked like a couple of Quonsets. It seemed impossible that an infantry outfit could be housed in two Quonsets, but I pulled a deuce and a half to a hole outside the gate and cut off the motor. I picked up the AWOL bag, got out of the truck, Trying to figure out which one was the orderly room. I walked across the hard-packed snow of the yard to the first quantum. I still couldn't figure it out. Light and warmth seemed to pour from the windows along with the music I remembered from somewhere, but couldn't quite understand. I stepped up to the first window I came to and looked inside. There were kids all over the place. Kids of all sizes and descriptions. Kids just old enough to sit by themselves. Kids just losing their first teeth. Some just starting their teens. I stood in the snow spellbound, just watching them sing. Finally, I threw myself away and headed for the front door, eager to be inside. A plaque made out of the howitzer shell stopped me. In the faint light, I could just barely make out the words engraved on the polished brass. But finally, I read it all. It said, This orphanage has been erected and maintained in the memory of... Of Corporal Richard Whitey Dombrowski, who somewhere north of the village of Chungju Ri, Christmas night, 1951, 
willingly gave his life that others might live. Suddenly, I didn't know where I belonged anymore. The AWOL bag dragged at the end of my arm like a thousand-pound weight. I could figure what was in it, but I tore it open anyway. The bag full of candy, soap, and toothpaste and gum shined up at me, looking as rich and rare as frankincense and myrrh. I closed the bag. Laid it up against the door, close, so they wouldn't miss it. And then I banged on the door as loud and long as I could, so I was sure that they heard me. And then I ran. I ran back down the road to my truck as fast and as hard as I could. Christmas Carol, written for suspense by George Bamberg. Heard in tonight's story were Bill Lipton as Larry Connolly and Lyle Sudrow as Richard. Also heard were Larry Robinson, Watson Servey, Bill Meter, Alan Manson, and Guy Rex. Well, the presents are all opened. We have to collect up the wrapping paper, and oh, yeah, Christmas dinner is done too. So we're going to go and snuggle up next to the radio to listen to more old time radio classics on WOTR, your old time radio station on the internet. So Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah to all our friends and listeners. And that will do it for our broadcasting day. Please join us again next time on WOTR, your old-time radio station on the Internet. WOTR is produced by JNR Productions, which is solely responsible for its content. Music is provided by the YouTube Audio Library and Dan Lebowitz. My name is John Richardson.